Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew Hoffman. I'm a professor of medicine at Stanford University. And today we're going to have a podcast to discuss the new guidelines for adult growth hormone deficiency syndrome. I'm going to be discussing the new guidelines with Dr. Kevin Ewan, who is the medical director of the Barrow Pituitary Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Ewan is also a professor of medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and at Creighton University School of Medicine. We would hope to discuss a number of important topics today, having to do with why we needed to update guidelines. In this talk, we will summarize the current knowledge of growth hormone stimulation tests and summarize the increasing evidence for the beneficial effects and long-term safety of growth hormone replacement therapy in adults with adult growth hormone deficiency syndrome. Among the topics we'll discuss will be the high cost of therapy, some of the difficulties physicians have had in making the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency, and to discuss safety concerns of long-term growth hormone therapy. We'd like to highlight the several populations of patients who are at risk for developing growth hormone deficiency and find ways that we can help discern the best ways to test and treat these patients. We will also discuss briefly the use of growth hormone in regard to reproductive medicine and to discuss the abuse of growth hormone therapy for sports and for aging. And finally, we'll bring you up to date with some of the new information on long-acting growth hormone preparations. So Dr. Ewan, welcome to the podcast. And I wonder if you can tell us if other societies also have guidelines for the treatment of adult growth hormone deficiency. Thank you, Andy. So yes, other societies, namely the uh, Endocrine Society and the Growth Hormone Research Society have previously published their guidelines. In fact, the last publication from the Endocrine Society was back in 2011, and the Growth Hormone Research Society guidelines were published in 2007. As far as I know, these guidelines have not been updated as we speak, and therefore the most current guidelines that we have on this topic is the uh, 2019 ACE guidelines that was published in November last year. Well, growth hormone deficiency is a relatively uncommon illness. I wonder if you could tell us about how many patients we're talking about for these guidelines. Yes. In fact, we think that approximately 50,000 adults in the United States may have growth hormone deficiency and approximately 6,000 people are actually diagnosed a year. Some evidence indicates that this condition is perhaps underdiagnosed in certain high-risk populations, particularly those who have uh, acquired growth hormone deficiency, say from uh, traumatic brain injury, which represents a substantial proportion of patients who are not diagnosed simply because they may not be assessed and they may not be properly evaluated for the possibility of adult growth hormone deficiency. Uh, In terms of 
the annual incidence of adult growth hormone deficiency, it is estimated to be roughly about one per 100,000 people. But this, if you take into consideration of individuals who develop childhood onset growth hormone deficiency that subsequently then they transition over to adulthood, then it rises to perhaps roughly about two to three per 100,000 people. So if you add the uh, patients that continue to have persistent adult growth hormone deficiency from developing this condition in childhood into maturity, then the incidence actually rises a little bit. But I still think that the overall incidence for this condition is still very much underdiagnosed. Well, we've been treating adult growth hormone deficiency for more than 25 years now in the United States. Are there any new developments that people need to know about? Perhaps in the last five years or so, there have been numerous studies looking at new developments, particularly in the field of long-acting growth hormone formulations. So that is the first and very exciting field where long-acting growth hormone formulations have been studied, both in adult and children with growth hormone deficiency. And the reason why the long-acting growth hormone formulation has been proposed and studied so frequently in the last few years is because there is an increasing need to simplify the daily injections, which we think is really the uh, inhibition or the roadblock to better patient adherence. And so they have been using different technologies to prolong the action of growth hormone to enable long-acting growth hormone formulations to be studied. And in fact, most recently, the uh, long-acting growth hormone somapacitan or Sogroya manufactured by Novo Nordis was actually approved by the FDA in uh, 2020, August, so not very long ago. So that's one of the uh, new developments. The other, perhaps you can say not so new development, but certainly relatively new, is the fact that there is a new testing agent called Messimorelin that was approved by the FDA in December 2017. And it is the first oral growth hormone stimulation secretagogue, and in fact, also the first growth hormone stimulation test to be approved for diagnostic use in adult growth hormone deficiency. The uh, Massimorelin test indeed has several attractive components to it in that it is orally administered. It has a short testing duration of only 90 minutes, only requiring four blood draws and does not require much medical supervision when performing this test. And in the studies that have been done, the uh, test is actually generally very well tolerated by most patients. So it is approved and it is ready, available to be used for diagnostic purposes for patients suspected of having adult growth hormone deficiency. I think it's very exciting that we will soon have the ability to prescribe a long-acting growth hormone preparation but I wonder if there are any concerns about these new molecules in regard to safety and whether it will be simple to move patients from daily growth hormone injections to weekly injections. Yes, there is still a lot to be learned about the long-acting growth hormone preparations, simply because each of these preparations have their own unique pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties. And therefore, it is important that you view these new long-acting growth hormone preparations has its own unique properties and therefore may actually require different ways of monitoring the efficacy in terms of monitoring the efficacy, dosing, and therapy as well. But they do offer 
an advancement over daily growth hormone injections because obviously the injections are far fewer once a week versus once a day and may offer increased acceptance, tolerability, and perhaps even therapeutic flexibility to many patients, particularly those who are having difficulty keeping up with the daily injections. Nevertheless, there are still many important questions that need to be answered for these long-acting preparations, particularly in terms of the long-term safety of these growth hormone preparations, simply because it is a prolonged supraphysiological elevations of growth hormone IGF-1 levels that these formulations induce, and therefore we don't know whether that translates into long-term safety issues or not. We also don't know whether these differences in molecules translate into whether there are differences in tissue distribution of growth hormone that is being exposed in the body. And another question that is also very pertinent is the fact that if they are long-acting and if patients do get side effects, will these side effects be prolonged compared to the daily growth hormone preparation? So I think there's still some questions to be answered about long-acting growth hormone preparations, but indeed, it is very exciting. It offers patients hope that injections need not to be given on a daily basis, which is one of the major reasons why compliance is an issue with many patients with daily growth hormone injections. Well, Kevin, you were the senior author on the new ACE guidelines that were published in 2019 for the treatment of adult growth hormone deficiency. What would you say are the key takeaway messages from these guidelines? The important key takeaway messages is that it summarizes the most current knowledge of the um, accuracy and cut points of the various growth hormone stimulation tests that we have proposed, which is the insulin tolerance test, the glucagon stimulation test, and the Massimorelin test. It also has a lot of data emphasizing the safety of daily growth hormone replacement. And it also emphasizes that growth hormone should not be used inappropriately for sporting enhancement and for aging purposes. And also it does give the reader an insight into the developments of long-acting growth hormone preparations and what they can expect and how the effectiveness of long-acting growth hormone preparations will be. The recommendations are also there for this guidelines in terms of how it offers practical guidelines for physicians in terms of effectively transitioning patients from pediatrics to uh, adult services. It also has recommendations on the individual dosing of certain patients in certain patient groups, particularly different age groups. And also, it also has scientific studies of how effective and how safe uh, growth hormone has been over the years. And that uh, emphasizes that the safety part of daily growth hormone injections is actually quite uh, valid and that so far we have not actually seen any red flags in terms of its safety, emphasizing that it is a pretty safe treatment. The guidelines themselves are, are very detailed and the document is quite long. Let's drill down a little bit. Are there any major changes from the old guidelines? Yes, there are. So specifically, there are six important changes that the current guidelines have compared to the old ones. Namely, that there is a description of several non-tumoral causes of adult growth hormone deficiency. In other words, patients who present with other conditions such as traumatic brain injuries, subarachnoid hemorrhage, strokes, infections, perhaps some of these patients 
could be considered for screening for possible growth hormone deficiency simply because there are now studies indicating that they may be more susceptible to develop growth hormone deficiency. The other part of the new changes is the fact that the uh, use of arginine tests that was previously recommended in the old guidelines published in 2009 is now no longer recommended as a diagnostic test for adult growth hormone deficiency simply because we now have the uh, Massimorellin test being available and also the fact that arginine is not a very potent growth hormone secretagogue. And therefore, because of its low potency, it requires a very low growth hormone cut point of 0.4 nanograms per ml, which may not be reliable, particularly when it is performed in some growth hormone assays. So the arginine test is no longer recommended. The third change is the uh, more emphasis on the importance of transitioning patients over from childhood onset growth hormone deficiency to adult growth hormone uh, services, and that importance of retesting these patients to ensure that they still have growth hormone deficiency before they are transitioned over to adult services. And good communication between pediatricians and adults need to be uh, in place in order to ensure smooth transition to avoid these patients from falling by the wayside and not following up when they go into adulthood. We also provide a new algorithm incorporating the Messi-Morellin tests in the diagnosis of adult growth hormone deficiency. And we also provide new growth hormone cut points for the glucagon stimulation test, particularly taking into consideration that these tests should only be performed when the clinician has a degree of clinical suspicion for the patient and also the fact that the uh, growth hormone cut points are taken into consideration with the patient's individual uh, body mass index. We emphasize also the importance of standardizing growth hormone IGF-1 assays, and we also provide detailed guidelines on how to start and how to effectively and closely monitor growth hormone replacement therapy, particularly in patients who are susceptible, such as those with diabetes or those who are on very high doses of growth hormone replacement. I wonder, are there any recommendations there that clinicians might be surprised to find or might change some of the ways that they practice medicine right now? Yes. So certainly for the uh, glucagon stimulation test, which is used quite frequently because of its ease in use up till recently, the lowering of the growth hormone cut points for this test is now recommended simply because of the effects now we know of body mass index in the growth hormone secretion induced by glucagon, which is why lower cut points are now recommended for patients with higher uh, body mass index. In terms of safety of long-term growth hormone replacement, particularly in cancer, tumor recurrence, and secondary neoplasms, it is important to note that, again, the safety of growth hormone now is pretty reassuring. The safety data is very reassuring. So I think the reader might find it helpful to know that uh, it is not something that can cause cancers, particularly in patients who have been treated long-term. Growth hormone replacement also, importantly, does not universally cause diabetes or worsening of insulin resistance, especially if lower doses are used, because we know that low doses of growth hormone replacement does not cause uh, or does not tend to cause lipolysis, which may actually, in fact, have an important role in improving insulin sensitivity. So in patients who are susceptible to glucose intolerance, caution is recommended and lower doses are also emphasized. And finally, 
in terms of patients who have strong family histories of cancers or histories of cancers themselves for at least five years or so, growth hormone can be considered provided that a clearance is obtained from the patient's oncologist. But then these patients have to be closely monitored and you have to work closely with the oncologist if growth hormone is considered. But certainly uh, it can be considered. But again, close collaboration with oncologists is recommended. I wonder if you could say a word about the use of growth hormone during pregnancy and in patients who are attempting to become pregnant. The use of growth hormone actually in some studies have shown that it actually does in fact help with conception in females as well as in some males. But as you know, in this field, there aren't many large scale studies and many good quality studies. And so Anecdotally, I have also found that that may be of benefit, but certainly because of the fact that the data is still not that extensive, we have adopted to recommend the use of growth hormone during conception and pregnancy as being guarded and in fact not routinely used and in fact is not approved as yet by the FDA. One of the most common uses of growth hormone is the off-label use for fitness for cosmetic reasons, and as an anti-aging elixir. I wonder if you could speak to these uses. Yes, um, this the use of growth hormone has long been involved in the sporting arena and also for anti-aging purposes and has been extensively advertised in the media. And in fact, if you look at our studies, uh, at least the studies that we have published, there is really no benefit of using growth hormone in these two areas. And in fact, many of these conditions where it's used, high doses are actually used. And in fact, this is really not something that is safe. Uh, Side effects are more frequently reported and the positive benefits that are purportedly to be advertised uh, is really not well documented and not well proven. So we strongly advise against the use of growth hormone for sporting enhancement purposes, and also for anti-aging, because again, the safety of the use of growth hormone in these two conditions, especially in large doses, is still not well known. It's also still illegal. Absolutely. I wonder if you could give us the broad overview. What are the specific implications for the practicing endocrinologists from these guidelines? We feel that for the presentation of adult growth hormone deficiency syndrome often can be quite nonspecific. Patients can present with many symptoms that may resemble simple obesity or metabolic syndrome that endocrinologists see very often in their clinical practice. So it is very important that an endocrinologist, when they are faced with a patient, that they need to take a good history, they need to be sure that the patient has potential causes of growth hormone deficiency such as a previous pituitary surgery or radiation to the brain, or if they have had childhood onset growth hormone deficiency. So certain conditions that actually may make you think that they may continue to have growth hormone deficiency. And only in these situations, in the appropriate clinical context, that uh, endocrinologists should consider testing these patients further, specifically with growth hormone stimulation testing in order to confirm the diagnosis of whether they have growth hormone deficiency or not. 
In addition, they also have an, an algorithm in these new guidelines that offers the endocrinologist the choice of selecting the most appropriate growth hormone stimulation test that they could conduct effectively and safely in their clinical practice. And also, it has to be tailored to each individual patient's circumstances for the growth hormone stimulation test that they choose to use for these particular patients. For the endocrinologists as well, it is important that they consider using doses that are not uh, detrimental and not likely to cause side effects and specifically taking into consideration of the patient's age group. So generally, if patients are younger, they can uh, tolerate higher doses, where, whereas if they're older, they should be started on lower doses. And also patients underlying medical issues, whether they have perhaps underlying previous history of gestational diabetes or whether they have underlying history of uh, impaired glucose tolerance. We also want to emphasize that the long-term safety of growth hormone is reassuring and therefore patients can be reassured that so far up to 25 years now, there hasn't been any uh, important safety signals against the use of daily growth hormone provided they are used in the right manner and the dose is titrated accordingly to the IGF-1 levels. And importantly, to be mindful for the endocrinologist when using growth hormone of other potential interactions that may have a growth hormone on cortisol and thyroid hormone metabolism. So if some of these patients are on hydrocortisone or prednisone for that matter and thyroid hormone replacement, they may need to adjust the doses if they are put on growth hormone replacement. Can you give us an example of how you have applied these updated guidelines to your own clinical practice? Yes, I can uh, perhaps give you two. Uh, the first is the use of morelin, And I have applied the updated guidelines in my practice using morelin, perhaps a little bit more frequently now, more recently, because it's, it's such an easy test to conduct. And in fact, it's also much quicker. And so I have, over the last perhaps nine to 12 months, I have kind of used more morelin. And in fact, I used to use a lot of insulin tolerance tests, but uh, my utilization of this test has decreased substantially because of the uh, difficulties of conducting this test where it requires a lot of medical supervision and a lot of patient screening in order to ensure that the test can be performed safely. I have also considered using growth hormone in a 50-year-old patient, female patient, who uh, really wanted to be on growth hormone because of her quality of life being quite poor, uh, very tired, very unable to do much. But she did have a distant history of breast cancer of over seven years or so. And so I had this very close collaboration with the patient's oncologist and started her on growth hormone with the help of the oncologist to closely monitor her as well. And indeed, the uh, quality of life of this patient improved quite remarkably uh, while she was on growth hormone. So those are my two kind of examples. But then again, extreme caution needs to be exercised, particularly in those patients who have had a history of cancers. But I think with a distant history, I think one needs to closely collaborate with the oncologist in order to ensure that this medication is uh, used safely. Thank you, Kevin, for going through these very extensive guidelines and providing us with an overview of the changes and of the major recommendations that ACE has made. I think this will be very helpful for practicing clinicians as they treat their patients with adult growth hormone deficiency. 
Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.